Hey, Shay. <laughs> hey, Ian, what's up? Not much, you know, just sitting here thinking about the end of our immersion, yet another successful three weeks, two weeks that we had delved into any topic and completely mastered. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Which is why I'm so comfortable asking you the following <laughs> question. So I know that you and I have been listening diligently to K-pop for the past two weeks. And like any ardent, if I use that word correctly, never mind, uh, K-pop fan, I know that you put in the legwork and you probably looked up some of these lyrics and probably a few Korean words along the way. So I'm just going to quiz you randomly and see which Korean words you definitely learned during this immersion. Stuff you absolutely would have heard from these songs. Shall we? Sure. Sounds great, Ian. Okay, here we go. So I'm just going to tell you the word and then you're you're going to tell me what it means. Okay. A hundred percent. Like yep. you can't, you can't be wrong. All yep. right. Uh, the first word is just, you know, nice and easy. Kamsamnida. Oh, that's thank you. Very good. All right, one for one. Uh, the second word is sarange. Uh, that, of course, means love. You are knocking it out of the park, okay? No, the third one is dong. Uh, that means girl. Close. That means poop. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, Shay, I'm going to say that a two out of three ain't bad, okay? Uh, I, you stepped in some shit there at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, great job! Let's start the show! Hello everyone and welcome to Camp Re-Education, an immersive boot camp into the world we thought we knew. We are your hosts, Ian and Shay, ending our two-week immersion into the fabulous world of K-pop. Welcome, welcome fans and friends and family and potential new guests to Camp Re-Education. Uh, as Shay just said, the immersivest podcast in the world. <laughs> That's a superlative now. Deal with it. Um, this is the ultimate. This is the ultimate, not penultimate. <laughs> this is the ultimate conclusion to our K-pop camp. Uh, we've got some fantastic interviews in store for you. We had the good fortune of speaking to Miss Kathleen Ho. Uh, and uh, Callie Buseman, both of whom work for, uh, what was it? It was The Cut, correct? Which is now owned by Vox. So uh, they're just part of that big, hungry, beautiful media machine, baby. That's true. I'm here as well. <laughs> is that, I don't think that's a compliment. Uh, I don't think it is. Um, hello, listeners. If you didn't know I'm here, you probably wouldn't have guessed that from how much airtime Ian just stole from me. <laughs> Regardless, uh, I hope you all are doing well. I care about you. I check in on you. I don't know about dirty old Ian over there, but uh, clean. Dirty, dirty old Ian. <laughs> young, is, clean uh, Shay. <laughs> He's I was here. hoping that, that was a nickname I was going to grow into, but I'm glad to see that that day has finally arrived. <laughs> there, It's finally here, Ian. One of the few things did, in lives that you will truly finally grow into. Did this camp really make you feel your age? Like while you were, you know, driving around in my car, cooking food in my kitchen, just having K-pop on, just having teenage music on in the background. I was like, this is creepy. Uh, I don't think so, actually. Did you feel that way? That's yes, I did. That's why I just brought that up. <laughs> like, oh. That was the whole reason I had that spiel was to end with the idea that this feels wrong. Oh, I didn't understand that was your reason. Um, <laughs> gotcha, fucker. <laughs> See region, what my reason. Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't. It was I my reason. 
I don't feel that way listening. I mean, my, my fucking mom listens to pop. I don't, if anything, I feel older or no, really? no offense, mom. I'm I not telling maybe you there's, Maybe there's like a window or something at some point where it stops being okay listening to pop. And then I don't know, you hit your fifties and it becomes okay again. I don't know. I don't, I feel like every sorority girl listens to pop, <laughs> you know? And you, yeah, you just mentioned people in the age range of like 18 to 22. Like we are men in our thirties, which is a very sexist thing to have just said. And I immediately, which I'm, you know what? No, I'm glad I said it because this is a perfect introduction to some of the things that I've been struggling with over these uh, past two weeks. Did I just insinuate that I've been struggling with my masculinity? I really have no idea what you just said to me. <laughs> I feel like you, you had some mental gymnastics you were going through there or <laughs> trying to work it out. Listeners, we just went on a beautiful journey together. Uh, okay. Um, but no, it was, a, it was a really interesting week. We had tons of music, uh, lots of docs, lots of talks, by which, of course, I mean documentaries and conversations. Uh, so yeah, I, it was so fucking enlightening speaking with Kathleen and Callie, who g definitely gave us some new perspectives on this medium that we are now 100% experts in. Any additional questions you have for us, just go ahead and email us at ian at campreeducation.com. Uh, <laughs> he'll be 100% responsible for any emails going forward. Uh, how do you like that, Ian? <laughs> Not editing that out. <laughs> I actually don't mind the sound of that at all. I would love to uh, respond to all of our fan mail with like lanky... Lanky, with lengthy, <laughs> like totally prolix, absolutely just verbal diarrhea riddled emails. Like <laughs> I, I welcome and warn anybody who has the uh, balls to do... What is Ooh, wrong with me today? What happened, Ian? You were on such a roll. I am <laughs> fucking toxic today. I don't, don't like it. Ian, Ian, Ian. Well... Uh, you know, clearly we're not doing well on our own, so maybe we should go ahead and bring in the experts early today and show everyone <laughs> what it is we have learned so far. So, without any further ado, we asked our experts this week to just go ahead and lay out the obvious and tell us what K-pop is in plain and simple terms, and this is what Kathleen had to say. <laughs> K-pop to be more of an industry rather than a genre of music because K-pop can it can be a lot of things right it can include Korean rap it can include some more emo music alternative whatever it can also be that girl boy band kind of music that you hear and a lot of the songs in K-pop are honestly like a blend of a lot of different genres and it can be anything from like EDM to to other things so K-pop is more of an industry I think versus like a pop pop which I think is is just a genre of music The most interesting part of that description was it felt obvious in retrospect. The idea that K-pop isn't actually a genre in itself, but it's more of an industry, a way of creating music, um, a, a pipeline almost of creating music than it is a genre in itself, which was confusing for us because I think when we when we saw the word pop in it, we we associate it with the genre of pop music that we were so we were so familiar with, in which we talked about a lot in our last episode. But I think what it really is, is it's almost more, and again, to allude to our last episode, it's almost more like K-popular music as opposed to the genre of K-pop. And once we were able to view it in that framework, 
it all made a lot more sense to me, especially because I was following a couple Spotify playlists that were under the K-pop genre, but which do not mean any of the normal qualifications for pop music, at least in my book. And so that really helped explain a lot uh, that I didn't originally understand about K-pop. Mm. And for me, I don't know, it was like this, the the most depressing question that I was wrestling with this week, and I know we talked about this a little bit and you disagreed, but again, it was just this idea that like, I, I don't know, maybe like to make good art, you need good funding, mm. which is what we're seeing with a lot of these, you know, K-pop groups and stuff like that. And I think we had joked about this during the interview that we'd had this, I don't know, 10 to 20 year run of like strong independent artists kind of coming out and, you know, uh, managing some success. But it's almost like K-pop is a rejection of that. And it's like, actually, you know what? Fuck self-produced music. Like, I want the the band that has like a $50 million uh, music video production budget, you know? Like, I want I want the fireworks and the fucking flashy clothes and the, the smooth baby skin. Like, I, that's what I want. Fuck your cabin experimental album. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, that kind of stuff comes in waves. So I think we had that in the 90s, you know, when we saw the what, what I think was like our fundamental exposure to boy bands. We had that. And then, at, you know, the, the, the corrective musical market was like, no, now we like indie music. Now indie and uh, a rock music will, will be the next big thing. And then it slowly kind of made its way back to this high energy, big K-pop sound through like slowly turning electronic again and then from like indie electronic now it's an easy bridge to in your face high energy high production k-pop but why do you think that is though i mean like what drove that turn like do you really think it was just like fatigue or maybe like a, a different generation coming of age and demanding something different or do you think it was something like i don't know historical historical like maybe a presidency is that what you're referring to i i mean i i I'm just trying to think about what material reality would have like led to that shift. I mean, maybe, and maybe that's an overextension. Maybe that's me overthinking it. Maybe like you had just said, it is. It's just a generation coming of age and leaving that key marketing demographic of 18 to 35. And then the industry pivots and goes, okay, like what can we sell this generation? Because they're not buying um, their grandpa's Michael Buble album. Michael Buble is not that old. They're not buying mom's <laughs> Alanis Morissette albums. She's no longer a jagged little pill. She's a smooth fish oil capsule. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I really do like that. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. I mean, I think that's what it is. You know, and it's just like when we talk about the whole premise of the show is, again, like challenging our biases. This, I think, for me, like my re my reluctance to accept and enjoy this stuff is, again, I think for me, it's this idea that um, I, I can't get over this idea that I'm supposed to be thinking about this artistically, which is, I think, you know, part of this whole, uh, self-concept conception that like forms when during your formative years and like, I didn't want to listen to, you know, Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And I like you turn to, I don't know what, what even was considered underground in the nineties and early aughts. Uh, probably like drum and bass music. Probably a lot of hip hop was still underground. I would say like the early years of new metal. I would say the early years of indie music, like uh, fucking Neutral Milk Hotel. Oh God, was that early two thousands? Uh, early uh, Neutral Milk Hotel was late nineties. That's super crazy. But yeah, I think I think I don't know. Like my frustration stems from the fact that it's uh, I'm it's a media production. It's entertainment 
masquerading as art and I I can't get over that knee-jerk rejection of it. And I mean, it isn't because, you know, and Kathleen put it best, like, it's not a genre, it, it it's an industry and it's hard for me to, yeah. I, is it masquerading as art at all? I don't think K-pop is saying we are the most artistic music out there. I don't think that's. that's I don't know. There's something about the marketing it that still thing. makes me unsettled, unnerved. I, I mean, how are we supposed to feel about like, you know, it's it's just so interesting because if I think of like the cultural history of Korea, and I feel like I'm getting into a weird place here, and then I'm <laughs> thinking about the corporate culturefication of Korea. I mean, like, how are we supposed to feel about? when corporations start manufacturing our culture. Well, isn't that what Disney is? Is is, is that what American culture is? Is American culture just Disney? <laughs> uh, I feel like it's definitely a huge part of it. I mean, Disney, but also like all of Hollywood, all like every fucking uh, TV network, you know, the, the big music labels like Warner Music, Sony Music in the United States. I mean, it's not like that's not already happening everywhere else. Okay, but that's not okay. But that doesn't answer my question. My question wasn't like, isn't that what Disney is? My question is, how are we supposed to feel about it when corporations co-opt our culture? I don't know. Uh, is are they co-opting our culture? I guess maybe co-opting isn't the right word. Maybe it's driving the culture, and you know, it's just like everything gets. I don't know if this is like corporification. Is there a word for this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's cer I mean, Disney certainly drives American culture forward. You know, so Do you think that's true? I don't necessarily know that. I mean, like, I think they're maybe the most like dominant media force in the industry. I mean, like, what exactly do they have their hand in? Like, I know that they control like Marvel. Do they control? Like, I don't know why I think they control like fucking Nestle. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> Little Mickey's in our water. You know, I I have no idea what they control. I feel like they control everything. I know they have Star Wars. I'm pretty sure they have Fox Entertainment. Uh, they have like. They own everything. They own fucking Hulu. That's dark to think about. Like, can you imagine you're going to Disney World and you're in like Toy Story Land and like they're, they're going to have like, I don't know, like Bill O'Reilly Land next or something like. Not Fox News. No, they definitely don't own <laughs> oh, Fox <okay>. News. But <laughs> I'm just thinking about like a Fox News wing of Disney now. Like. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I, how do we feel about it? I don't feel great about that. I mean, no, I feel, actually I, I know how I feel about that. No, I hate that. <laughs> I don't know why I was so like why it took me so long to get that. Wait a minute. I hate this. Wait a minute. You yeah, know, I definitely I wasn't trying to did, like hide it from you. <laughs> yeah, uh, if if you had just made it clear Ian from the beginning that I already hate this, I wouldn't have fought you on this so much. <laughs> no, but I mean I, I, and like I, again, like I keep coming back to this knee-jerk idea that I'm not being fair to K-pop. And mm. like you had said earlier, like maybe it is just like weird latent uh, racist idea where it's like I have to like coddle Korea because I'm just like oh like they don't understand but like, maybe they fucking do and that did it no they do I lived there what am I talking about like, it's just... <laughs> but I think this has to do like again like my aversion to it come, stems from this like paranoia of like the, uh, I guess I'll call it the corporification of, uh, you know, leisure activities, of art activities. When it starts, uh, when they get their grubby little corporate hands, and when I say their little grubby corporate hands, I mean uh, capitalists. I don't mean Koreans. Oh my God. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. Like, wow, this, this guy's pretty racist. Um, when, when, it, when that overreach starts happening to like every facet, I mean, uh, especially like the creative market. Like that's 
when I start really looking sideways at what's kind of being shoved down my throat. And I also don't think that that's accurate too, because again, like I need to be willing to allow the distinction between entertainment and art. And I don't know why I'm being so pig headed about it. I know we've had this conversation before about corporate hands on art, but again, I don't think that I don't think K-pop is being marketed as art. And I and I think you're right. I think it is it's entertainment in the same way again that like Disney and the Marvel universe is entertainment. I, I mean, it's certainly entertaining, but I don't think it's going around with the intention or you know uh, parading itself as capital A art, you know, for for our consumption. I I don't think that. It gets treated. I don't think they teach Disney in art school. You know, I don't think they teach <laughs> K-pop or YG or any of the the Korean entertainments like in art school. But then the artist. But then it's like that kind of becomes the dream job for the artist, right? They're like, oh shit, you got hired at Disney. Um, damn, you got healthcare. <laughs> but I mean, I, I you know what? And I think here is the root of my paranoia. It's that I mean, having like studied so I, I for any camper education listeners out there that don't know this i started college as a marketing major and quickly was like oh this is evil i hate this and then i switched to like literature and it was weird because there was a lot of there were a lot of parallels wherein I, like you know advertising and m m artistry are both kind of going after the same thing where they're both trying to get to like the root of what drives human behavior what do people want and then one is doing it in the interest of like the human experience and then one is doing it in the interest of convincing like finding out what is making you unhappy and then using that to fucking make you buy shit yeah i think i mean they're both they're both deeply involved with human psychology it's just ways of playing around with it and yeah i think you're totally right to meet different ends yeah, when they, I don't know, it's just like, and something about like when they combine forces, I'm like, ah, fuck, gross. It is weird. Yeah. Well, okay, enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Kathleen also had some really interesting points regarding K-pop fandom and its differences between K-pop and A-pop fans. K-pop fandom to fandom of say like even Taylor Swift or like Justin Bieber, those are like who we consider to be the biggest stars in our like American pop universe, right? And like the the amount of people in ARMY and in K-pop fandoms is just like so, 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 so much larger. And I think honestly, they're like more involved and more energetic and even more like um, engaged, I think with their community than like the American pop people are. Um, I think she's really right about this. <laughs> like, I I feel like I hear more about K-pop fans in the news than I do about um, Beeb heads and Swifties. And uh, is Beeb head a thing? Like, it's what believer. are they called? Justin Believers. Believers. Believe. <laughs> they still is that still a thing? Like, I, I thought know. after he like showed had his penis on the internet that like they the that's believers a thing. Huh? No, that's not a thing, is it? His dick being on the internet? I'm yeah. pretty sure I'm right about that. I'm Googling it right now. I need to know. Wait, what did you wait? Can you please just tell me what you Googled well, in? Justin Bieber penis and the cut oh, should of, we, all, let's, of all Let's people. rank it. Let's rank it. Uh, it's so funny because the cut is the, 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 two, the two guests. It's called had. a circumcision. It's not called the cut, Shay. Okay. Hi-oh! <laughs> there are pictures of Justin Bieber's big penis on the internet. Okay, well, now let's just go to images. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm not. Oh, do I have to like type in like Justin Bieber's big penis? I think you have to use that qualifier. I'm like really just modifier. I'm sorry. I'm not seeing it anywhere. I don't believe it anymore. I want it. I'm not getting it. And I'm like pretty soon over it. Okay, anyway, so who are we talking about before? <laughs> uh, before we got sidetracked by uh, the likelihood or the possibility of Justin Bieber having a big penis. Um, how do you feel about Justin Bieber having a big penis? I mean, I would prefer he didn't have a big penis. That's kind of my thought, too, is like, mm, I feel like if you're going to be that rich and famous, like, something should be wrong with you. Okay, I think I found some pictures of his penis. Uh, and it doesn't look that big. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Do you think he knew like the paparazzi was there and he chubbed up a bit before he walked out naked? Uh, <laughs> I think if you live, I think if you live under the assumption you're bound to be photographed at any minute, I, I would always fluff myself before I walked on a balcony nude. Oh, of course, yeah. Now I just okay. So th like, I'm gonna stop looking at all these pictures because it's basically just turning into. A, as I scroll further and further, there's less just a Bieber and a lot more just gay porn. So I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, and I, it's nothing wrong with gay porn. It's just a little distracting. When we're right, so to... anyway, before we got off on the Justin Bieber's penis tangent, we were talking about gay fans and uh, their rabidity. Um, <laughs> and w one of the things that we were discussing before recording was this idea that like. Part of the reason the rabidity even exists is because there's like almost this barrier to entry to the fandom, right? Right, and that's what Callie said. And, uh, and so you guys are in for a treat because so far we've heard from Kathleen, but there's a whole nother person as we've mentioned before, and her name is Callie. And guess what? You get to hear from her right now. to become a K-pop fan, you just have to put in so much extra work in. If you're a person who's not from Korea and doesn't speak Korean, like I remember when I was first starting to get interested in it, there was just all this terminology I didn't understand. There was all these, the way that like music is promoted, the way that they appear on Korean shows, to me that was also foreign. So I had to learn all of that. Sort of like the bar to even get into it is so high that it kind of breeds this kind of like intense dedication and obsession. Like you can't like, it's not like where you can just like casually be like, oh, like what's Justin Bieber up to? And like everything kind of is already a reference that you already know. So when, when we first talked about this with Callie, you had a really good analogy to this. You're like, oh yeah, it's like when the, you initiate members into a gang and you beat the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> And then the gang members are like, well, fuck, if I got my ass beat to be here, like, I, I probably shouldn't leave. <laughs> like, yeah, it must be worth it. <laughs> that really sucked. I should stay. <laughs> and uh, and so Ian and I were like, well, I'm pre we're pretty sure there's a name for this, uh, this, like, phenomenon. And, I, and after, like, a ton of... <laughs> Well, after a, a once we were uh, done googling Justin Bieber's penis, <laughs> <laughs> we we googled for a little bit uh, this idea, and man, it was hard to find. But eventually, we found the Wikipedia page <laughs> on something called effort justification. And you know what? Uh, you know we love uh, reading reading from Wikipedia here. So uh, throw on some music, and here we go. Effort justification is an idea and paradigm in social psychology stemming from Leon Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance. It's a person's tendency to attribute a value to an outcome, which they had to put effort into achieving greater than the objective value of the outcome. 
So what all that gibberish basically means is like if you put a ton of energy into something, you're going to retroactively think of it as an important thing. Specifically to help yourself feel better about uh, to, to quell that nagging voice in your head that said, maybe this was a bad investment. Maybe it was <laughs> dumb. And we see this a lot. We see this all the time. We see this in uh, you know relationships that drag on. You're like, oh, well, we've already been together for five years. Um, we see it in like poor, you know, purchases, like, uh, the decision to stay in a major that you're maybe not happy with. Like, this is a really common phenomenon. And it's really interesting. The idea that, uh, maybe it exists in some of the K-pop fandom as well. Do you think that's a fair? Is that a little too harsh? Uh, I mean, I, it's a, I don't know if it's a psychological phenomenon. It probably exists either way in all of us. So is, is it, I don't think it's unfair. I mean, I think maybe to chalk it all up to that might be a little unfair, yeah. but we can also blame it on what we discovered is called the Ikea effect, which is, ooh, what's ooh. that, Jay? And we have, we have a couple of fun effect names for you today. So, so we're starting with the Ikea effect. And again, reading directly from Wikipedia, because we are, <laughs> we are truly scientists here. Um, <laughs> The IKEA effect is a cognitive bias in which consumers place a disproportionately high value on products they partially created. Uh, and so the idea here is that K-pop's apparently K-pop fans are largely responsible for the rise and fall of K-pop of K-pop groups and the culture itself. Yeah, especially after talking to Callie, and she brought up specifically like this idea that um, I mean, K-pop fans will literally like log on and encourage each other to keep on like hitting repeat on YouTube so that they can drive their plays up. So like when we go on YouTube and we see something like, oh, it has 10 billion plays, that's uh, an exaggeration. But it's it's uh, likely a community of fans who just kept playing the video over and over and over and over and over again to create the perception that it's a better product than it is. Right, or at least that it's more popular than it is. Or, yeah, you know, which is fucking crazy. And I don't wanna keep saying things are dark, but does that seem dark to you? That seems dark to me. It doesn't. It doesn't actually seem dark to me. I mean, it's just a bunch of people manipulating a number. Like, who fucking cares? And like, <laughs> I don't know. It just. There, I get the idea of. I understand the idea of liking something and wanting it to succeed, but it seems like there are so. Like again, like we come back to this idea of like independent artists, like these musicians or filmmakers or you know visual artists or people that like actually need support to succeed and it's just like instead we have people it reminds me of when people like people started donating money to kylie jenner to make her the youngest billionaire like the fuck that's insane i did not know that oh that was i guess it was a thing apparently that was a thing i don't know how accurate that is but um i remember seeing uh, a a thing about it um but yeah, I mean, and that's a, a big separation is like part of the reason for K-pop's popularity is, I mean, not necessarily the amount of fans, but the dedication of the fans, which again, like Shay had uh, beautifully read earlier from the Wikipedia pages, <laughs> may stem from this kind of uh, like, I, I don't know, almost fandom Stockholm syndrome, where you feel compelled to you, your success almost hinges on the band's success. When you say your success, you mean the success of the fans? The fan success, yeah. It's like it's almost like their competency as a person is gauged in their ability to like buoy their idols. 
Well, it does seem like a lot of their identity comes from being a K-pop fan. And I think if they see the their their band or what do they call them they uh their fandom right stands well yeah so yeah but if they if they see whatever artist they is their main bias which is a, a, a no the bias is a fucking member i'm trying to get all the fucking vocab right but if, <laughs> if you find like whatever your k-pop group is if they succeed and make it in the western world it's almost a justification for all the energy and identity stock that you put into being a k-pop fan like if i love bts and now all of a sudden after streaming BTS for you know months and months, now they're a huge deal in the Western world as well. It's almost a validating symbol for me that like it wasn't all for nothing. You know, the, all the stock I put into this meant something. That's what I was. That's exactly what I was trying to say. But uh, after two delicious Pacificos, <laughs> this episode brought to you by Pacifico. <laughs> um, I didn't do as good a job, but yeah, that's that's exactly what I mean. Mm. But again, like talking about the like. I keep coming back to this idea of these these knee-jerk criticisms. And again, like if we think about the fans of K-pop, like Callie was a fan. Right. And she doesn't strike me as like that type of person, but maybe she's, I mean, like, and Kathleen called herself a blink. Like, but and maybe I'm wrong. And Kathleen and Callie, if I'm complete like if I am wrong, uh, you know, let us know and I'll happily correct myself later. But they don't strike me as the type of people to like stream a video a hundred times in a single day to to you know launch it to the top of the YouTube charts. What exactly do you mean by that? I have a preconception about some of these like extreme fans. Like uh, you know maybe uh, I, I don't know like for you and me, let's say that a celebrity that we like does something offensive. Like I'll probably be like, oh that's shitty, but I'm not gonna like take to Twitter. And I'm just like, I'm picturing Rise of the Valkyrie, like, like, I'm not going to do that. Can we play that behind me? Like, well, of course, we're going to play that behind you. Of course we are. Let's play it again. I don't see them like rushing to Twitter to, you know, stir shit up or like to raise hell. No, Oh, I'm sorry. You don't see Callie and Kathleen. I, honestly, I, I guess what I'm saying is they seem normal. Like they seem <laughs> <laughs> so they, they seem grounded. They don't seem like they would put all of their, see, their yes, identity yes. into this. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They do seem very well-rounded, grounded people who aren't uh, dedicating unhealthy amounts of time to their K-pop fandom. So I, I guess that's what it sounds like you're describing is this difference or uh, really the amount of healthiness that someone, the, how healthy someone's <laughs> fandom is for for any particular group. I, I you know, I'm still uh, honestly, even after having Callie like run through some vocabulary on like how we talk about <laughs> K-pop. Let's get some. Let's get some music going, and then Shay, uh, I've got I've got the vocab list here. If you don't, well, I do. Uh, none of mine sound that good. Okay, well, my, all right. So a good one, a local, a non-K-pop person uh, who doesn't quite understand K-pop. A trainee, a 14 or 15 year old child brought to the industrious K-pop uh, factory, uh, trained to sing and dance for others' enjoyment until they reach their prime and are removed from the K-pop equation. Uh, a bias is someone's favorite member of their K-pop group. And you can also have a bias wrecker, someone who comes in and steals your man or woman <laughs> of choice and becomes your new bias. Uh, the idol group uh, is the uh, idol group. 
<laughs> group of idols. <laughs> uh, we have the visual, the most, I don't know who defines this, but the most attractive person in, uh, in a the debut. That one pretty much scans in English too. The debut. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is English. <laughs> and then of course, after the debut album comes the comeback, which is accompanied with an entire rebranding and it comes with a new, what they call a, a comeback stage, a comeback concept and a comeback aesthetic. Which is basically just, again, a rebrand. Did you already say rebranding? I certainly already said rebranding. Well then yeah, like Shay said, and I'll just say once again for emphasis, a rebranding. But it seems weird to call it a comeback if it's just the second album, like because we, you know, have our own term for that. Yeah, don't, don't call it a comeback. Sophomore album. And do you know what it's called when it's their third album? Uh, their junior album. Ooh, Ian, Ian, a swing Damn. on this. Uh, well, fun fact, I don't know if you're right or wrong, so you could <laughs> <laughs> So you don't know either, so join me in uh, giving Shay a gigantic go fuck yourself. You know what, and it's times like these where I love a good non sequitur. So Callie had something else to say uh, when we asked her about, um, when we asked her about K-pop versus A-pop. So here it is in her own words. The difference between K-pop and like American pop, I would say, is that I think what distinguishes K-pop is that there's an audio, it's like audio visual. I think that the visual elements are really, really important and you can't really, if you're like a true fan who's really interested, you can't separate those two things. I think that like the aesthetics, um, the music videos and the performances and the choreography are like all kind of like integral to how you understand a K-pop song. So I think like just listening to the song isn't the full experience, nor is it necessarily meant to be. Although like the songs do stand on their own. So I think that would be the biggest difference is like how much consideration goes into everything that accompanies the song. And so I had when we started this immersion, only been listening to it. And I think I said this in the last episode, but she basically is reiterating some point that it took me a, a, a minute to understand is that it's not, it's not really about music. It's, it's about this, it's about this idea of, I think, literal idol worship. What do you think? I think that's accurate. I, I think it's, it's not just supposed to sell you on this. You're not supposed to listen to the song and be like, wow, I really like this song. But I mean, you're supposed to be able to visualize the, the, the well, it seems like it's like visuals. a lifestyle thing to me. It's it's like you have to buy into their entire personality. You have to buy into like their aesthetic. You have to buy into the music. It's I feel like you're not selling. You're not just selling visuals. You're not just selling music. You're selling literally an obsession with something. I feel like that's that that feels most accurate for what I've seen so far. And and I have to wonder, Ian, is this anti-Christian? <laughs> are these false idols like, tell me Ian so I think I think you're right and again this exists are you blowing past my question Ian I'm getting to it I, okay <laughs> uh, I'm watching you okay this this perfectly ties into the point that I had kind of breezed through earlier where it's the perfect combination of, of marketing and artistry wherein you have not only crafted music, crafted visuals, but I mean, even every personality 
of these K-pop artists is cultivated so that you have like the shy one, the pretty one, the one with the learning disability, the That's one with uh, one, you know, the, the one who's Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I almost let that one go. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not right. <laughs> the one, the one who can't read and she's, and he or she is like, Ooh, if only there was someone who could help <laughs> oh me read. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, and that's something Callie told us, too, was that a lot of these these groups have their own reality TV shows. So they're also caricatures of themselves. Like, is there any part of this, any part, any aspect of this group that they haven't tried to sell? No, none. <laughs> it's all it's. But I mean, no, truthfully, it, it is all branding. And like, this is something that I thought about a lot during this 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 week as well. And the the brilliance of the marketing, at least to teenagers um because you know again i, I feel all, all the way i just want to go on the record and be like i feel really fucking bad for me like oh kathleen and kelly seem pretty normal no they seem they, they're very exceptional human beings um but i guess what i was getting at is like when i think about the, these rabid fans i'm thinking about the teenagers that like this is especially being marketed to because they're the ones buying the stickers they're the ones buying the t-shirts they're the ones buying the concert tickets they're the ones that are like running the fan pages like they're the ones who have allowed these things to kind of stand it as an alternative to the life which is very unexciting very un uh stimulating and very drab boring and, and full of rules and regulations and it's like it's this fantasy it's an invitation to fantasize about being someone different or being with someone different uh you know for you know people interested in like the boy bands romantically uh or girl bands romantically why did i get into the romantic thing but i mean whether it be platonic or romantic like it's it's all of it is so specifically crafted and i don't necessarily think we saw that with boy bands from the 90s and maybe that was our fault for not thinking far enough ahead of marketing <laughs> well, no better. i think they they really did take a product that america created and not just in the 90s but you know even even before that with boy bands from the 80s and, and before that you know, even like the you know the jackson five i think we talked about this a little bit in the, the, the previous episode but you know the, the the prototypical boy bands um you know they, they took they took something that was working really well for us and they reshaped it and sold it back to us and there's actually a name for this this is the pizza effect if you think of pizza it's something that american soldiers took back from sicily basically or southern italy after world war ii took it back to the United States, changed it almost irrecognizably from what it was, and then brought it back to Italy. And then now Italy is like, yeah, we love this new pizza thing, whatever. You know, we we're basically like taking their shit and selling it back to them. That's what they fucking did with K-pop. And they took what we had and they improved it. They made it more marketable and they, they found ways to sell every single inch of this particular commodity. You're right. Korea is the Papa John's of music because they're also <laughs> blazing past that. Just not, <laughs> just not even stopping on that for a single moment longer. Uh, we we did talk about a darker side of, of K-pop as well. Oh, a darker side? It's got to be oh, a darker well, side. How, huh? how would you define child labor as a lighter side, Ian? <laughs> I see your point. Let's roll the clip. The K-pop industry, they're known for doing these like extensive training programs, like the way people would do for prepping someone to win like the gold medal or something like that in gymnastics, where uh, the, these big entertainment groups like YG, they'll do gigantic auditions that are now held across Asia and I think 
as well as America, looking for people that have like teenagers that have potential, or at least a desire to to want to be a K-pop star and to learn to like dance and sing. No, I mean it, it is like ob- objectively messed up, but I think that's not specific to Korea either. Like just child stars globally is a very messed up concept. Like look what we do to them in America. Like. We, we have a system that created Lindsay Lohan. Oh. Like, we're not innocent. <laughs> we might be the worst. Yeah. <laughs> what we did to Lindsay Lohan is awful, and we did it as a country. Um, <laughs> but we made, we made, like, a handful of Lindsay Lohans. I feel like... No, yeah, we, we've produced many. Like, we produced Britney Spears, like, poor Britney. Look what we did to her. <laughs> We have like this Disney model for making pop stars that was popular in, in the late 90s. And that's where Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears come from. And, you know, many others. Ariana Grande was a Disney star. and Ryan uh, Gosling was a Disney star. Was he? Yeah, he was. Oh. And he seems so normal. And he, and he seems normal? Is that what he said? <laughs> yeah, he seems so normal. He actually does seem relatively normal. Compared he seems to the rest of them. a little too normal, if you ask goddamn me. God damn you. Uh, so, so, but it is interesting because they, they did take, they, I mean, they took the, they even took the fucking Disney, ch- the Disney child star method and ramped it up, just made, made it a fucking industrial machine. And now it pumps out like 2000 failed wannabe idols a year that then go off. And like I said, in the interview, they get thrown into the meat grinding machine and sold as dog food to, to, to surrounding countries. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, on that rather hilarious note, kudos. Uh, no, and it, this is something that I had mentioned in the interview, and I, I fucking hate to quote myself, but I'm at a Do loss for it. anything else to say I, because it. I'm doing this episode mildly drunk, everyone. Hey! <laughs> is, um, we, when we think of ethical consumption, we think of ethical consumption in terms of like making sure that slave labor isn't behind the products that we consume. Like, okay, is this was this coffee like not fucking you know picked by slaves in uh, somewhere in like Africa or Latin America? Um, were, are my clothes not made in a fucking sweatshop? But now we have to like ask ourselves this other complicated weird question about like international art. It's like okay, like fourteen year olds are being made to dance twenty hours a day, so I can be like, wow, what a catchy top line. Um, what does what does ethical consumption start to look like? We're like, even the songs, even the music starts to become questionable. Right. And it, what's interesting is I think both Kathleen and Callie had the same response that I don't think either of them felt totally satisfied with, especially Callie, who when she said it, she's like, yeah, I don't know about this. It seems like they like it. I mean, it seems like they're happy, like, right, they're happy, right? And how how much agency can a 10 or 12 or 14 year old really have over the direction of the rest or at least the next like 10 years of their lives going through this intense Machine. I mean, if you brainwash a 12 year old to say like that, you will be a star, just work 14 hours a day for the next 10 years and you'll be a star. Like, does that child really understand what's happening or are you just convincing brainwashing them to work for you? And you know what this reminds me of, too? It reminds me of when we did reality TV camp, and it reminds me of watching Honey Boo Boo and, like, all those pageant moms. And this is just, like, the pageant mom ideology to the umpteenth degree, right? Right. Like, like, uh, because, again, like, I don't, like... There has to be a responsible parent to be like, like, mom, take me to the fucking slave dance company. And they're like, a parent has to be like... No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's really fair. And you know what? It's funny because we talked about 
Uh, I think in our, in our ignorance in a bottle, or at least in our first episode, we're like, it's like bubblegum pop on crack. But really, it's not the bubblegum part that's on crack. It's the fucking schools on crack. It's like, it's, it's, the, it's the pageantry on crack. It's the dance school on crack. It's the singing lessons on crack. It's everything else. The music, I mean, it's high energy, but that's not the extreme part. The extreme part is what we're doing to all of these children. <laughs> and uh, you know what's so funny too is like uh, that feels almost like a Puritan response right. to again like oh yeah think of the children like that's such a, a, a passe argument um, but it does uh, think I of the children <laughs> think of the children like again like I'm watching like 19 year old supermodels dance and like bend over and I'm like won't somebody think of the children <laughs> but no it's it's uh, it's weird because what's the next step? What do we what do we boycott K-pop and and you know because uh, I mean I don't know I don't, I think we've already preemptively boycotted K-pop you and I <laughs> <laughs> you know so I don't, I don't know and I it's still you know there's always like this weird cultural sensitivity idea like it does feel weird to boycott something that has branded itself as a cultural export because then it feels xenophobic. Yeah, and I mean, well, I mean, you know, America's really great at embargoes. Look at what we've done to uh, enroll the music as I list all the countries we've got put an embargo on. Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, many more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we, we love that shit, but it, it always comes across <laughs> as... We love our embargoes here do. at Camp Re-Education. But it does, oh my God. But it definitely comes across as xenophobic, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know it if does. that's necessarily the right answer. And, I, and from what it sounds like, from what they told us, it, it seems like they, they're becoming increasingly more aware of the problems, and they are making changes. Maybe it's maybe the changes are happening a little too slowly, but you know, at least from the, the one documentary that we saw, it does seem like that there are slow changes that are happening to reform the process and hold these entertainment companies that put these children through these intense training processes more accountable to 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 everyone to society but i mean i don't even know what that would look like like how does that look like sorry you can only make them dance 15 hours a day instead of 21 <laughs> uh yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Um, well, on this note, I think we should go ahead and take a quick break because we might still have a sponsor here. We're not totally <laughs> sure if we've canceled sponsors yet, but we'll, we'll, I'm going to stop talking and whatever happens afterwards will be the answer for you. It's been a hard day of child slave labor at the K-pop dance factory. Your tiny child legs throb from being mercilessly beaten by her coach with a bag of limes. She says they won't leave bruises, but that doesn't stop the nightmares. Sounds like it's time for an ice-cold Pacifico. Taste the salty shoreline of Mazatlan, Mexico, and let your problems melt away. Now this is a good use of lime. Pacifico. For when your real human suffering becomes a punchline in a fake ad on a sad podcast. Wow, that may or may not was a great sponsor. So uh, something that we were talking about behind the scenes it was the only thing worse than child slavery, which is cultural appropriation. Yes, that's right, Ian. We hate cultural appropriation here at Camp Education. More than child slavery. More Let the than, record show. Yeah, we hate it so much. We are the most progressive. We are the most woke. And these opinions of ours <laughs> are the most. So kudos to us. We, so you cannot. <laughs> yes, don't cultural appropriate from us, you 
appropriators. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> what are we doing? Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So Callie had a really interesting point about this. And it's actually a point that I strongly feel myself. And to hear her say it was incredibly validating for me. So um, <laughs> I'll let you hear what she had to say right now. I think that cultural appropriation tends to be conceived of by Americans in this way where we always see ourselves as the dominant force that has the ability to like pluck from other countries who are necessarily like beneath us. And I think other countries don't think of America as a dominant force. So it's not the same like power hierarchy that Americans imagine. I think especially now that Americans like straight up in decline, people like are like, we don't see you as like a power that's taking from us that we're like (laughs) worse than because like- Anymore. Yeah, like Korea is like actually creating better cultural products you, so why wouldn't you want to? <laughs> yeah, like we're not. Why would we take offense to you wearing hanbok? Like that just means we're selling more. Yeah, um, and unless, that, like, like, unless like Nike started making them, then that might be weird. Like. <laughs> But even then, like, I think, I do think, like, the way that, like, Americans think of a cultural appropriation inherent in it is this idea of American superiority that I think other countries don't necessarily have. Yeah, so uh, I guess the implication there is to to claim everything as cultural appropriation implicitly, I was going to say implicitly implies, is that redundant (laughs) to implicitly? It is, but uh, you can do anything you want because you are the host. Like we can do whatever we want. We're the hosts. We're the hosts of Camp Re-Education. I feel like I can see those two beers hitting you. (laughs) 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 Anyway, um, I feel like the the implication there and what Callie was saying is that if, if, if everything... It's only cultural appropriation if you're a dominant force. I mean, she says that. So if you're accusing someone of cultural appropriation, you're implying a power dynamic. And the idea there is that America is always the most powerful. So it seems like there's this patriotic, ethnocentric undertone to that criticism. And I understand the criticism is coming from a good place. Like you're looking out for marginalized people. But at a certain point, it's it's. You're inter- interfering with people and saying like, S- um, stop, you're being attacked for being marginalized. And then they're like, well, actually, I don't actually feel marginalized. If anything, like, I feel more marginalized by you telling me that I'm marginalized than by feeling marginalized any other way. And this is, I think, a conversation that we're going to probably see happening more often, especially as we see America's decline and other countries rise to prominence. I mean, I think, I don't know if it's already happened yet, but it's predicted that within a couple years, Korea's economy is going to be stronger than France's. I think they've already risen to like, they're now like a top 10 economy. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure they're worth more than Canada. So at this point, they're going to stop telling people like, oh, look, listen, you can't wear uh, Canada goose. It's actually appropriation. Like, would you please think of the poor Canadians? Yeah, so I'm just looking it up now to see where uh, South Korea, apparently to worlddometer.com. This doesn't seem like a good source. <laughs> World, I'm sorry, what was the name of that website? Worlddominator.com? Oh my God, no, Worldometer. It's probably Worldometer, but I'm just saying Worldometer. <laughs> <laughs> I was, the way that you said it, I was like, who made this website? Pinky in the brain? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I went back to a more reputable source. This is wikipedia.org, our favorite. <laughs> and uh, uh, But they they take their information from the World International, from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. And uh, they have South Korea as number 10. Um, I mean, it's not even close to France. It's like <laughs> maybe <laughs> Whoopsie. a little less than half of France. But you are correct. It's only... A few million dollars shy of Canada. 
So uh, yeah, and then and their economy is on the up and up as well. So I mean, it, it, it's interesting as we start. We're going to have to keep having these conversations as other countries kind of rise to prominence again. And it it is interesting to kind of tiptoe around the subject of K-pop while the number one song on the fucking Billboard charts is charts is a BTS song. Right. I think what we mean to be saying about this whole cultural appropriation thing, I I really feel like we just totally went off on a tangent there. Because I think when we were talking to to Callie about this, what we were specifically talking about was a white American K-pop group. And we were asking the question, can white Americans do K-pop? And I don't think that was clear a second ago. So uh, (laughs) we're sorry about that. I think uh, Ian led us there with his drunkenness. Poor Ian, just (laughs) leading us all astray. I I shouldn't have done this episode drunk today. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) But uh, I think I think that better uh, explains this question of cultural appropriation. And I mean, we also have the question, though, of whether or not Korea is immune to the criticisms that Americans, white Americans get for rapping, because we we see all of this borrowing, borrowing and borrowing from black America in Korean music that is effectively a corporate machine. And it's a, it's a it's a weird question. And uh, this is what Kathleen had to say about it. Well, it's so interesting because even when we were just looking at the the definition of uh, K-pop on the Wikipedia page, it lists like five or six genres combined. It's like it's the it's the combination of all of these genres, most of which were made by Black America. So it was really interesting to say like, well, it's a genre that borrows very heavily from a marginalized group in the United States, but it's claimed, I think, largely as its own. I, I, it's interesting, the attri- attribution point, I never considered that, but it does seem that they they still, for some reason, get a pass laundering. And so when Ian and I, when we were talking about doing this camp, we had actually considered doing a hip hop camp ourselves. And then we're like, you know, this seems very problematic. <laughs> very, very quickly, we're like, let's not do that. And <laughs> later we're like, okay, what about K-pop? And then we're like, there's a lot of hip hop in that. Right. Can we just like skirt this rule by like by just like Ian sings half in English and now half Korean and now like we're not Like if I rap in Korean, is it okay? If he raps in Korean, is it just suddenly okay now? And I'm just curious, what do you think of that? Again, going back to the attribution, right? I think it's about giving credit to being reading or learning about where, what you're you're consuming and what you're trying to produce and where it originally came from, right? And I think it also depends on like the content of what you're doing. Like I don't speak fluent Korean, but like I don't, I think a lot of rap is also about, American rap is about rapping about your experience and where you came from and kind of, you know, your, your experience like getting to where you are. And I don't think that's like what they're doing in Korean rap. Like those, those lyrics are kind of like more fun, like silly and taking, they're not trying to mimic the experience of rap or the experience that rappers have had in America. I think it's taking a genre of music and I would hope like taking cultural, uh, having a cultural appreciation for it and kind of making it their own in that way. At the time, I didn't think about this, but I, I, I mean, I don't know off the top of my, like, are, are they attributing to, like, I don't know if they're, like, like this one goes out to black people. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I totally agree with that because it, it does feel easy to just say, like, oh, okay, well, it's, it's like, you just, like, credit them in the background. It's like, oh, yeah, shout out to, to them. Okay, cool. I'm still going to take your shit. You know what I mean? Like, if, if I... 
if <laughs> if you made a really fucking cool painting, Ian, and I just like made the same fucking painting, and then like in the spark or like in the in the end credits of this painting, I like said <laughs> inspired by Ian. Like, does it fucking matter? I still stole your goddamn. You know what's interesting too, and it's like, and I had said this in the interview that you can listen to if you become a Patreon subscriber to get all of our behind the scenes footage. Um, is I think footage. that the the reason there's a pass is because uh, appropriation really only works only works it only becomes offensive I guess the word I'm looking for when there's power involved and I, I I do know that like white America has a long history of um, you know stealing and, and uh, reappropriating from black musicians and essentially just you know using that to become successful but um, I don't think there's been any subjugation uh, of black communities in the United States by Koreans. Um, so I think that's why it gets the pass. I, th I think power is largely in part the reason why it's okay or why there's not as much of a knee-jerk uh, reaction against it. I gotta stop saying knee-jerk, Jesus. Right. You know, and you know why I think this wasn't a question before is because I think it was, uh, before it was a matter of like, okay, like how can we sell more music in Korea? And now the question has come up because Korea has become a global phenomenon. So right. it's like, all right. Hip Korean rap is famous. Time to have the hip hop conversation. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if they continue to grow and if it does continue to become more influential globally, then obviously then you increasingly have the question of are you just stealing this from people of color? But one of the reasons that we started talking about this and this whole conversation stemmed from the original plan for this episode for the series was that we were going to record K-pop. And the more I sat down to do it, the more uncomfortable I became in this idea of like, well, if I'm doing it as a joke, like, is it racist? Like, am I just kind of like using this weird loophole to rap if I'm doing it in Korean um, to kind of try to pull one over on people? Uh, if I do it sincerely, it, it probably, it feels like cringe. And one of the things that was driving this thought process was this documentary that we had seen or that Shay had watched. And I had, I had watched some of the, I listened to their songs and I watched their music video, which felt like punishment enough of this white K-pop group called EXP uh, Expedential or whatever. <laughs> Edition. Uh, EXP edition. <laughs> Terrible name. Um, and uh, I liked Kathleen's stance on this. So let's go ahead and hear this and then we'll chat about it a little more after. What makes them K-pop? Is it the fact that they're like singing in Korean? Yeah, I think they're also in Korea. They speak Korean. They live in Korea. They're they're making the music the same way they work with the same producers. Huh. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. It's it feels like such a weird question, doesn't it? That just. I mean, how do I feel about that? I guess I would feel like okay. I guess if there's an audience for that, I don't know. <laughs> if people want well, so to see people doing that, I think it would bother me more if if for some reason people thought that was more legitimate than the actual K-pop, mm. like the other K-pop oh. groups that existed. Or if people were like, oh, this is like an amazing thing. Like, can you believe, like, if that was being celebrated more than say like BTS or Blackpink or whatever, like, is it more legitimate just because they are white people doing it versus not white people doing it? And I believe my response to this was, uh, yeah, I would hate it if it worked. And then we'd all have to say the whites are at it again. Oh, my God. It, I mean, it was a really fascinating question. And so, Ian, you didn't watch the documentary. 
but what no and i'm dying for you to kind of give me a summary of just you know the sob story these guys had to give about why no one liked their music <laughs> okay well uh, the, uh, uh, a few interesting facts about this that i think a lot of people that was lost on a lot of people is that uh first of all it was a korean american woman producer who okay. started uh this all white american group the name exp edition stands for experiment edition so the entire project, the entire musical group was the result of, uh, I think it was her dissertation or uh, uh, th- uh, something about her thesis. Um, I think at Columbia or something um, where she was trying to get to the question of what is K-pop? She was exact, She was doing exactly what we were doing, uh, like basically exactly what we were doing. We were going to start making K-pop as two white guys. She wasn't a white guy. So she just found some white guys to start making K-pop and then asked the questions, well, okay, well, how deep do we have to dive for this to count? And so she got four people who had been singers and dancers through, throughout their lives. She basically pulled the fucking Lou Pearlman and made her own goddamn boy band group out of nothing. And then uh, set them off, brought them, to, brought them to Seoul, taught them Korean, taught them how to dance and sing, made them all live together. And then was asking the question, okay, well, what about this isn't K-pop then? And there was no real good answers from the end of the documentary. It was basically, okay, I guess this is, but it's just white people. So it feels wrong. And I think the only reason it feels wrong is because it's a cultural export. And you, when you see white people behind a cultural export, there's something weird about that. It's, it's like when you, if you were to go to a, uh, like air quotes, traditional Chinese or Japanese or Korean restaurant, and you see the cooks in the back are all white, all the wait staff is white. Like there's something about that that doesn't feel right. What do you think that is, though? I guess, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I definitely think it is less culturally authentic. I mean, it's being watered down uh, in a way that is problematic in some ways to talk about. Because if you talk about like white culture being watered down, that's like the, you know, like the typical um, argument by racists in America. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, it's the same, the thing, the same thing is fucking true. I mean, I've, I've, I remember hearing about, lawsuits about uh, non-Hispanic people being uh, discriminated against as waiters at Mexican restaurants or, or things like that. And it, it's, it's a weird question, but I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I've got like my own theory about it. That's like really fucked up. Okay. Um, <laughs> Spill the tea. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got like two theories about this that, and like neither one is like that great and both are kind of fucked up. But like on the one hand, it's like this knee jerk reaction to seeing um, you know, uh, like I uh, mentioned in the interview as well, it's like, oh, oh, the whites are at it again. Um, in terms of like seeing something successful, like seeing a successful cultural product and then being like, oh, like we can do this and then, uh, maybe do it even better and then like market it. Um, but Korea is doing it so well, that's not working. But I think that's one of the reasons for like the round resounding rejection of this, like, you know, white K-pop group is this idea that, um, no, like w- the the world is done with uh, all sorts of imperialism, be it, you know, uh, hard power or s- soft imperialism, which I guess is what we would call like the, you know, reappropriation of uh, Korean pop music filtered through <laughs> white guys, which is <laughs> so weird to think about. It is but weird then to think the other about. one, which is like, which is like more fucked up, which is why I think it's unsettling for maybe for white people to see it is because we're so used to seeing our culture copied and reproduced we're not used to seeing, you know, white people uh, copy and reproduce, you know, foreign culture or uh, a foreign influence. So uh, for the people that sing, you know, like white guys make K-pop, they're like, oh no, but like 
uh, Korean men are more like effeminate. They, they, they worry more about their appearance and like they, they dye their hair, uh, you know, pink and, and, and dance. And um, that's it's it, whoa, whoa, like, what are you doing? Like, they're supposed to copy our culture. We're not supposed to copy their culture. So I think it's unsettling on like two fronts, one uh, resoundingly more racist than the other. But I, I think it comes from maybe like uh, an unconscious place where the idea that Again, like we're at this point where uh, the rise of Korean pop uh, it marks like the the harbinger of the fall of um, American harbinger. soft power. Did I say harbinger again? Fuck. I said harbinger again, man. <laughs> God damn it! I know better. Um, where it's again like this uh, harbinger of the decline of American soft power. It it has like created this anxiety where we just want to reject. Not I guess not only you know, K-pop in and of itself, but like any attempts by white people to imitate it too. I want you to clarify one of these aspects because I, I, I think, I don't know if you would, either I misunderstand you or I don't think you would agree when I bring up the idea of white people have constantly stole from other cultures. And it's it's not that we're uncomfortable seeing white people do non-white things. I mean, that's what Eminem was. That's what the controversy with Macklemore was. I mean, we're like, we're not, it's not strange for us to see this. When we, I mean, even like the history of blackface or even like, um, you know, like stealing from Native American traditions. I mean, I feel like we, we do this all the time, actually. So I'm not sure that that is necessarily the issue. I think we're, we're quite used to that. I think if anything, the the discomfort comes from seeing us We've done it so much that now when we see it, it it reminds us of a history of constantly stealing from other cultures that now we see it and we assume that it has to be a a, a bully culture stealing from a bullied culture. Well, I guess and in, in, in like the two different responses, too, because I do think that there is if we look at a lot of God, this feels fucking racist. If we look at the if we look at the segment of K-pop fans that are you know people of color, I think their reaction to it is white people at it again. White people, you know, oh the whites are at it again. And then on the other hand, I think for the people that aren't K-pop fans that see white people imitating K-pop, that's more like what are you doing? We're not supposed to imitate other cultures. Other cultures are supposed to imitate us, and they're not able to articulate it as such. But I think like that's their unconscious like rejection of it. That's that's what that's where it's coming from. It's coming from that place. Like they don't understand that it's coming from that place. But that's why they're like, why is it so unnatural? So you think so? You're talking about basically non-people of color reacting to white people in K-pop is them saying that you're supposed to copy us. You, so you think that they're saying that like. We are the dominant culture of force. You, you're supposed to, or maybe would it be more fair to say like you can I don't think, copy I think, like, us? I don't think this is like I don't think this is the conscious thought. I mean, of maybe for not. some people it is, but I think that a lot of for, for I think for a lot of people that can't articulate as much and they're like, why does this make me so uncomfortable? I think that's the thing that is making them so uncomfortable when they see three American guys try to form like a K-pop band. It's this idea that like, well, wait a minute, like why would you copy another culture? Like I don't understand. We're the dominant culture. Okay, but again, so you said. Other cultures are supposed to copy us. Do you mean other countries can copy us? Is that the I'm thing? No, I'm referring more to the historical trend that we've grown up used to. You know, like Russians buying Lee jeans, everybody loving Michael Jordan. You know, like we've we've been the, the number one cultural exporter since World War II. And as we've become a declining superpower because we can't figure out what the fuck we're doing as a country, we're seeing, you know, trends like this. And we're kind of scratching our heads going, well, what's going on? Like, uh, this is weird and unnatural. And I hate it. You know, it, what's so funny is in the documentary, they this is a Vice documentary, by the way, uh, just for anyone listening. 
But in the documentary, they they bring up a YouTuber who had a reaction video to, uh, who's a huge K-pop fan, had a reaction video to watching EXP Edition's music video. And the, like, I think it was the title of his thing was keep, he's a white guy. He said, keep white people out of my K-pop. And it was like this, and it obviously like very clickbaity uh, title and whatever. Yeah. And then the Vice guy asked him like point blank. He's like, what, what about this is so weird. What about this is not K-pop. And the guy could not come up with a good answer other than uh, he was, first of all, super reluctant to repeat that it was about white people or not white people. Mm. And then when when pressed, he had no answer. He basically couldn't. I mean, the answer is that it's white people. I mean, the the problem is a race issue. And he had a really tough time bringing it back there with the camera on. And I I mean, it makes sense because it's fucking tricky. And again, I think for me, it's not necessarily like uh, a people of color thing and a, a white people thing, but like, uh, you know, the people of color and maybe even the fans of K-pop who, again, like uh, Callie had alluded to, like tend not to be more racist because they're more, more open to like foreign influencer, you know, foreign culture. And then maybe people who aren't fans of K-pop, but who still have a strong opinion about a bunch of white dudes coming together to make uh, Korean pop music. Well, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Um, you want to uh, you want to stop, though? yep (laughs) okay let's bring it up to uh so we have another section everyone everyone listening at home uh we are pivoting now we were just talking about the interviews and we have no more interview clips that part is done now (laughs) i love this is so ridiculous now we're gonna go to another section this is our big smart boy question section it's our number one question section for sections of big questions from big smart boys right ian yes exactly but before we get into these big smart boy questions, we did have one final thought or uh, what was originally called the unanswered question section. Uh, God, there's so many sections in this fucking podcast. No, we still have our unanswered question section, Ian. Don't get oh, rid of that one. Oh, that's not going away? That's next. Okay. Oh, thank God. Got- I was worried we were running out of questions <laughs> to ask ourselves. This is our final <laughs> thoughts section. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, so many sections and thoughts. Um, uh, so one of the things that we were kind of racking our brains on was this idea of Shay, as you had put it, individualism versus precision in this music, and then as I had music, and then as I had kind of phrased it, pop expressionism versus exceptionalism. Um, Shay, what did you mean by yours? So when we talked about to Kathleen about this, she talked about how amazing every single group was in terms of singing and dancing, and she said that that, that doesn't compare. I, I think. She she brought it up in terms of the VMAs and said that, you know, BTS came in, they were flawless singers and dancers and that they just blew everyone away. And then I I mean, my response to that was, I don't think that that's what Americans care about is is synchronicity or like even like a collective uh, appreciation for collectivism. I think we as in the West are more individualistic and we want to see like the the single artists who pave their own way despite odds and who whose personality is on full display. So I think that there's this fundamental difference of what we appreciate in in our idols, you know, in our American idols like Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> and you know what's so funny too? And when I was talking about pop expressionism, like uh, we have a soft spot for musical acts that maybe aren't that good. And when I say not good, I don't mean like Bob Dylan. Maybe you know what? More creative 
than um, like flawlessly executable. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I think we want creativity. We want individuality. We want personality. I think we want something different in every single act. And so when we find that, it's super engaging and interesting to us as a culture. And I I think just generally, Eastern cultures are more collectivistic. And I think that the, the, the boy band, girl group, genre or style reflects that cultural dimension. But do you think, okay, but I I feel like that's a stereotype, like this idea of like, you know, Asian collectivism versus, you know, Western individuality. Like I I don't know if I necessarily like agree with that. I do think that's a way to like kind of easily compartmentalize and, and, and box things up. But I do think you bring up a good point about this idea of it's not being the point of music because I wonder if this is another reason why K-pop is uh, being rejected by people in the West or, or why we're trying to frame it as alien is that there is this like collectivist, I, I, I don't know, dynamic to it that we've been like, oh, we, we've all gone this. We don't we don't do this here in the West. Like, even if you look at uh, a lot of our, our, you know, the group acts, the boy bands from the 90s, like we applaud Beyonce and Justin Timberlake for like escaping these boy brands and, and then going solo. Yeah, absolutely. And just to touch back about the idea of it maybe being problematic, I um, when I when I specifically refer to these terms of co- uh, collectivism and individualism, uh, I'm ref- again referring to Hofstede's cultural dimensions. This is uh, one of the mm. things that he. This was one of the the five dimensions that he mentions is this this spectrum of individualism versus collectivism. And typically, in this more objective measure, the East does fall on this collectivistic thing. So, I mean, yes, it is a stereotype, but it's a stereotype based in in some research as well. I mean, obviously everything is effectively a a box. Every word you, you utter is putting something into a box. So yes, it's doing that, but I don't know if it's necessarily, I want, I just, I just don't want to be cast (laughs) as like some kind of a a xenophobe or ethnocentric person. Uh, So that's why I'm making this caveat. (laughs) Well, it's touchy. It's, it's, it's all touchy and and weird. And again, like we, we've been trying to have these conversations as like uh, honestly and fairly as humanly possible. Right. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, Now I, you know, I did introduce the big smart boy question section, Ian. So I do want to get to that. So uh, I'm just going to throw you into the fire here and say, Ian, (laughs) your big smart boy question for this camp was, is your hatred of pop justified? Is it childish? And maybe hatred was too strong of a word. Is it just a reluctance to enjoy it? Where are you at with all of that? You know, this is something that I thought like heavily about and that Callie touched on early in our interview together. And I was like, cool, she said it too. I'm justified. Um, <laughs> the, the hatred isn't necessarily a, a deep or profound analysis of the music itself because I don't feel like I did that until this camp. And I had to think about not only K-pop, but about, you know, pop in general and why I... I'm so averse to it. And I really do think it was a formative uh, personality thing. I really do think it was something that stemmed from me in middle school where, you know, I wasn't one of the popular kids. And it's like, okay, well, like, if I'm not going to be one of the popular kids, then I'm going to reject all things mainstream. And, you know, that's how I formed my idea of myself. And that's that's where this rejection of pop and all things, you know, pop comes from is it's essentially just like this unconscious understanding that like, that's not part of who I am as a person. um, And it's other. So is it childish? Absolutely. It's childish. It's childish because it's a, it's um, something that formed when I was a child. Like it's, it's a rejection of a genre that comes from me trying to figure out who I was as a person, as a person. Am I going to be able to overcome that to start to enjoy pop? 
it seems like it's going to be a lot of work and that I'm not interested in doing. So I guess I'm going to keep not listening to pop. <laughs> well, uh, you know what, Ian, I got to say that's pretty insightful. It seems like you, you really uh, have a really solid understanding of yourself, which I have just never touched on before. You hide it really well, but, <laughs> <laughs> but no, actually, I really appreciate what you say there. And I, and I relate to it a lot, actually. Um, yeah. All jokes aside. So, I mean, you, uh, you had the toughest question. You had the fucking <laughs> toughest question. We keep, we keep like kind of tiptoeing around this idea of, you know, culture and race and racism and xenophobia. Um, so your big smart point question was the idea of like, whether or not, you know, uh, us making K-pop is cultural appropriation, whether, you know, K-pop is cultural appropriation of like our culture's music. And if so, is it bad? So what did you come up with? And if I, I botched your question, let me know. No, I think, I think you got it. Um, I think the answer to all of these questions is yes, it's cultural appropriation. No, it's not bad. Cultural appropriation is not always bad. That's the conclusion I'm coming to is that there, there can be appreciation of it. I know that there's, there's a distinction and there are differences in this argument. And uh, if you at home are listening or in your car or in your kitchen or whatever you, whatever the fuck you're doing, <laughs> if you're doing that and you're thinking to yourself, this guy's a fucking idiot, please let us know. Send us a fucking letter. We'll read it on a follow-up episode. But I, I, I gotta say, I, Koreans taking pop music and reinventing it and selling it back to us, uh, that's cultural appropriation. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's really an issue. Uh, I mean, you, they're, they're taking a cultural product and a, a Western cultural product and repackaging it. But fuck it, man. It's cool. K-pop is weird. It's cool. It's like a, a ton of fucking character and personality, and it's it, it's it's completely redefined itself as separate from Western pop, and I think that's awesome. As far as white people trying to make K-pop, yeah, I think that's also cultural appropriation. Now, I think K-pop became so different from A-pop that now for us to go back to it, yeah, it's also cultural appropriation, but I don't think it's that different because it's a different thing, and I don't think we are necessarily on such e uneven footing that it is a domination or like a neo-colonialist type of thing. Like, I don't think we could not colonize Korea right now if we really fucking wanted to. So, like, We, we, we are colonizing Korea right now in a way. Like, we have military bases there. Yeah, but I don't think that that Okay, fair point. <laughs> I don't think from where we stand today, we can colonize in any real meaningful way Korea at this point. Do you think that you think I'm wrong? Fuck, man. Why do you ask these big, tough questions? Like, fuck. Look who's talking. What the hell are you talking about? You do this all the time um, to me. Yeah, well, because again, like, uh, well, well, like, what are we, what are we doing there now? Right. L you know, um, well, you t you're the expert on Korea. So I leave this question squarely on your shoulders and absolve myself. That would be an myself. entire other episode <laughs> on the history of Korea. You can look for that on our. No, 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 Ian. I refuse. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Be right or wrong with confidence, Ian. Just how do you feel? I... I wonder if, when, and how. I, I wonder if, when, and how we're gonna leave Korea. I mean, because we're, we're occupying Korea, you right. know, and like we're maybe we're we're there, you know, diplomatically. Like they've agreed to have us there, but at the same time, like we've been there for such a long time, you know. Um, it's it's it, that's an, an interesting, tough question that I don't think I necessarily have an answer for. Um, why why are we there now? You know, it's like. Yeah, you're right. This is a foxhole or a rabbit hole I do not want to go into right now. So anyway, thank you everyone for listening. We really uh, enjoyed this thing. But before we let you go for good, uh, we do have, Ian, do we want to do our, did we change our minds thing? I feel like we're good. 
Yeah, no, we nailed it. We fucking we just we kicked the we kicked this episode's ass. Yeah, this ass this ass episode has been kicked. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, so uh, I guess yeah. I mean, since I fucked up and didn't uh, record any songs, I think we're gonna go ahead and uh, exit with one that you wrote. So without further ado, everybody, here is Shay's band Retrolux with their song Roller Rebel. this week's amazing guests, Kathleen and Callie. To hear this week's interviews in their entirety, you can become a monthly supporter and join our Patreon where you'll get access to those and tons of other fun goodies. Theme song written by Retrolux. Here at Camp, we love supporting music and the people who make it. If you want your music featured on Camp Reeducation, then please go to our website to learn more. We hope you enjoyed this camp and this season as much as we did. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else to stay tuned for season two. We have a lot of amazing things planned and we cannot wait to share them with you. Oh, next time on Camp Reeducation? Education? No, no, no. Shut it down. Turn it off. I've had enough of this. This isn't even broccoli at all. What are you trying to do to me? Season one over. <laughs>